very thankful for uh, God being with us this morning. And uh, the way you're singing, love listening to you sing. The remnant of Israel was re- rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and they were having success. It was going well. They were almost there in a short period of time. But they couldn't get past one thing. They couldn't get past themselves. They couldn't get past their own greed and their own sin. Now, meanwhile, Nehemiah, their leader, is a man of integrity. He's a man that follows God. He's in tune with God. And as he comes upon this immense corruption that has descended on Jerusalem, he's heartbroken. And he's angry. And he's going to have none of it because he knew that it threatened the mission which was to preserve Israel in order to birth Messiah. And so Nehemiah wasn't going to back down. And we can see his response to the corruption. If you want to grab your Bible and turn to Nehemiah 5, we're going to start in the second half of verse 15. And then we'll work our way through some other texts. But Nehemiah 5, second half of 15, 345 in the Pew Bible that is in the rack in front of you. I'll describe the corruption in a moment, but Nehemiah now comes upon it, and he is shocked and stunned and saddened. But he also makes a, an oath to himself and to God, and we see this in the second half of 15. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Look at that phrasing. Out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Nehemiah knew who he was. He knew who he believed in. He understood his mission. And he wasn't going to allow himself to get sucked in to this pool of sewage that had overtaken this city. And because of that, God was able to continue the mission and indeed bring Messiah from Israel. But you and I have a choice to make too. We've got to understand who we are. Where are we going to plant our flag? Who are we going to serve? Are we going to serve God? Are we going to allow Him to use us to take people from hell to heaven, or are we going to serve ourselves? Are we going to be more aligned with culture than we are with Christ? That's a decision we all have to make. But I will say one thing. This morning, I want you to understand that if you do not fly above cultural norms, you will have no effect on this world. If you are just like culture then no one's going to pay attention to what you have to say. And I want you to experience the blessing of watching God work through you. And so what I want you to be thinking about this morning is what it would mean for you to rise above the norm of culture. Not to, not to stay even with the norm of culture, to rise above. And I think 
you'll find that God will do amazing things through you. Now, remember where we are in this narrative. Last week, everything looked really good. Nehemiah was leading his people through a very dark time. They were being harassed by enemies on every side. The people were terrified. They came to Nehemiah. They said, listen, we're scared. Nehemiah said, fine, I'm going to divvy you up. I'm going to put guards in there. I'm going to keep you in the city at night. And there was a peace that came upon Jerusalem. Now, all of a sudden, this happens. If you want to look back at chapter 4, verse 21, this will get us up to speed. 421. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At this time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night, workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. They were committed to the cause. They understood the danger. And even when they went out and got water, they were armed and they were ready. This is a good thing. We left off last week thinking, this is awesome. And now here we are in chapter 5 and something has gone terribly wrong. All of a sudden, these same people are corrupting themselves and hurting each other. And so we need to find out why. We need to find out what Nehemiah does about it so that we can learn not to fall into the same rut so we can get above culture and shine a light for Christ because this is what Israel was to be. And so the first thing I want to, you to notice as we get started here this morning is that opposition was now inside the camp. Opposition is now inside the camp. Before this moment, all of the opposition was amongst the enemy that taunted them over the wall. You had Samballot, you had Tobiah, you had Geshem, you had all these people who had an axe to grind, and so they were taunting, they were harassing, they were threatening, but they were afraid to move in because they didn't want to cross the king of Persia. But they harassed. So that was enough to worry about. But now, not only did Nehemiah have to worry about that force of darkness, now he had his own people to worry about. The enemy had moved inside of the camp. Not only were they now facing threats from outsiders, they were facing threats from their own kinsmen. It was their brothers and sisters that were now attempting to destroy the work. And this is a new dynamic. And Nehemiah is a leader that has to face this new dynamic, and he does it in unbelievable fashion. And the big overriding issue that was at hand that drove them toward corruption was a massive famine. There was a severe famine in the land. And much of the corruption we're going to read about here in this text is because of that famine. Now, famines were a big deal, of course, in this time. They're a big deal any time. But this was a, a culture that relied on on agriculture, 
you know, you couldn't store food in a refrigerator. You couldn't go to 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee if you were getting thirsty. Famines were a big deal. And God used a famine to force the issue. This reminds me a lot of when Joseph was with his family in Canaan, which was Israel, and there was a famine in the land. And God had allowed Joseph to become the vice chancellor of Egypt. And because of the famine, Joseph was able to wisely store food, bring his family from Canaan to Egypt, which is Israel, and then God allowed them to thrive in Egypt and become a great nation. This isn't the same thing, but it's very similar. Once again, God is using this tool to bring his people to a decision point. What were they going to be? Who were they going to serve? Were they going to just allow themselves to to sink into the level of the pagan countries that were around them? Or were they going to stay close to their God, the only true God? Israel was a nation that was made to be a light to the world. But now that was in jeopardy. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against the Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. And so all of the peace and all of the unity and all of the good things that had happened during the work is now being threatened. And if you look at verse 2, that specifically contains an argument that all of the resources are going to the wall, but we're not getting fed. So you can't eat brick and mortar. What's going on here, Nehemiah? I mean, we like the work. We understand why you're doing it. We want to protect Israel, too. We want Israel to not be in disgrace. But we want to eat. So what happens? The men and their wives raised an outcry. They raised an outcry. They started to, for lack of a better term, a term I might use with my children on a bad day is stop whining. They're whining. And here's the thing. They had it all wrong. They were followers of Yahweh. And their, their job was not to take on more and try to pilfer and enrich themselves. Their job was to give away the things that God had given them. To give away knowledge of who God is to these pagan nations. That was the job of Israel. When God covenanted with Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations and Messiah would be that blessing. But Israel was a light. And now they weren't being a light because they were, they were below the culture line. They weren't even visible at this point. As followers of Jesus Christ, we don't protect. We don't hold on to We don't try to protect our power, our turf, our money, our futures, our reputations. We die to self. When you sign up to be a Christian, 
and somebody slides it across. I don't know who, who would do that. I guess you don't really sign papers. But if you did, you'd be signing your life and saying, I will now give my life away. And Israel forgot that. And we as Christians forget about that. We get angry when the world starts to pull at us and take things that we think are ours. Nothing is ours. Make no mistake about it. You say I'm a Christian. You say I'm a Jesus follower. Nothing is yours anymore except for the salvation that Christ has given you and Christ himself and the power of God. Those are all real things. Everything else you're stewarding. And so don't make the mistake these people did. Don't try to hold on. And don't forget that in the dark days, God is with you. So that you don't have to make an outcry. You don't have to complain. You can get above it all. You can fly above the culture line. And you know what will happen then? People are going to look at you and go, whoa, wow. That's not a normal attitude. And then you have an opening. So until this point, Israel was dealing with their outside opposition. That was one thing. The famine strikes. Now the corruption has come inside and it's widespread. And here are some aspects of what we're talking about. First, futures were mortgaged to get grain. Futures were mortgaged to get grain. Look at verse 3. Others were saying... We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Now, this is a death knell if you're a small business person, if you're a farmer in this time. What they were doing is they were, they were giving over their titles, their deeds, everything they owned so that they could eat. And what was happening is the, is the people they trusted... Their own kinsmen were basically becoming loan sharks. So it would be like you taking your title of your house and your car and everything you own and going to the payday loan person and saying, go ahead, charge those exorbitant interest rates. I need a meal. And what happened then is they were trapped. And sadly, trapped by their own people. And you think, how could they do this to each other? This is what happens when you forget about who you are and who you serve. And you become fearful of your surroundings. And you feel like things are getting out of control. You'll do anything to get control back. And so here they are. They're facing ruin. And the reason that they were needing that money is that money was being borrowed at high interest rates. And the reason that they did that was because the king was demanding high taxes. So they had this secular thing happen. Oh, you need money for taxes? Fine. I'll give that money to you, but I'm going to charge you ridiculous interest rates. So if you look at verse 4, we see this happen. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So remember our friend Artaxerxes. He's our, our Persian king. In our story, and he's the most powerful person in the story, aside from God, of course. This is the king that Nehemiah served before he went to Jerusalem. Artaxerxes was big on taxes. He would have loved the IRS. 
because this is what, how he made decisions. The reason that Nehemiah ran into broken down walls is because Artaxerxes, 13 years before, had said you can't build anymore. Because if you become a sovereign nation, I am not going to be able to tax you. So, no more building. And now they're paying exorbitant taxes to him. And they're afraid of him. And the Jewish brothers and sisters are taking advantage of that. This is a horrific problem. And you can see how they traded in their integrity and their purpose in order to save themselves. We cannot do that as followers of Jesus Christ. We cannot trade in our integrity. We cannot trade in our identity. Sure, the world is a hard place. Of course it is. I remember somebody saying that the world's going to hate you because they hate me. And yet here we are as Christians going, wow, I can't believe they're doing that to us. Have you read the Bible? The world is a hard place, but we serve the king. And don't ever forget that. Israel forgot that. And look at the look look where they are. No food. No mortgages and deeds anymore. Interest rates that they can't pay. And then you think they've gone low enough. Now they're going to go even lower below the culture line. And we're going to see this in verse 5. Almost unimaginable. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to, be, we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So what's happened here? This is, this is as low as you can go. Children were sold into slavery in order to pay off debt. Now you might look at this and, and you say, well, this must be some other country. They don't do this in Israel. I thought Israel was about being freed from slavery. Well, so did Nehemiah. But so much in disgrace was Israel. So fearful were they that their children were now in slavery. They were oppressed. This is what you see when you go to India. You see children of lower castes. And the caste system is, is, is terrible in India. And the, and, the, and the lower castes don't have a say. They don't have power. They're the parents regularly sell off their kids into beggary and, and slavery. And you'll come upon children at, at the street corners, and they're there day after day because they are no longer, quote-unquote, owned by their parents. Some of these children have been horribly disfigured purposely as to elicit sympathy at the begging site. There are children along the streets that are eating with the pigs. No parents anywhere to be found. 
terrible oppression. And you think, well, how can this happen? Israel fell into the same trap. Why? Because they valued their, their own well-being and safety and way of doing things more than they valued even their children. We cannot allow ourselves to seep down into culture. We must stay above that. We must trust in God. We must put into practice the things that we say we believe. We sang songs this morning about the sovereignty of God. Do we really believe in the sovereignty of God? Or when something begins to go wrong, do we panic and try to grab things back for ourselves? It's very tempting to want to grab things back for yourself. But you see what's happening here is Israel is no longer sounding any different than anyone else. In fact, probably worse than their pagan neighbors. We've heard this term during the election called draining the swamp. Israel was now the swamp. They, they were supposed to be the drainers of the swamp. And there's no, there's no better current relevant example of what it means to stay above the culture line than the political discourse that is taking place right now in America. Now, I am, I am all for... I am all for trading of ideas. I'm a political junkie. I am right now trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life until six months from now when the next person announces they're running for 2020. But here's what I see. I see Christians regularly going beyond honest and honoring discourse into mockery, distasteful things being said. You know, I don't care who you voted for. I really don't. Every single person that ran in that election is made in the image of God, and they deserve our respect. Every person. Now, you can disagree with them, but if you're, if you're chiming in with, if you're being rude and dishonoring and mocking, who's going to listen to what you have to say about Jesus? The world doesn't need that. The world needs hope. Who's going to bring them hope? I don't know if you saw this. It was, it was an awesome thing. There's this guy named Ernie Johnson who is the number one sports guy at TBS and TNT, hosts the NBA things and does Major League Baseball. And I've known about Ernie for a long time because he worked with some family members. And he's always been an upstanding guy. But Ernie has had some problems of his own. He's, he's had children with disabilities, but he's a follower of Christ. And so he put a little two-minute video out this week. And he said, listen, he talked a little bit about his struggle with the election. And then he said, but I'm a Christian. And so I know who is on the throne. And I'm not afraid. 
And I think this was about the first four or five hours. It had already had 50,000 retweets, and it was going viral. Why? Because people needed hope. He wasn't on there saying, you know, oh, you, 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 you. He was on there saying, I serve a God that's way above any of this stuff, and I want you to know about him. That's what the world needs. If our behavior is no different than the world, if, if, you, if you want to put one finger and one toe over in culture, then no one's going to notice you. If you're going to fool around with pornography or drugs, you're going to deal with, you're going to allow your, your heart to be hardened by gossip and bitterness, then you'll have no effect on this world. If you want to have an effect in this world, then walk with Christ and do it in a way that's real and not pretend. I love what David said during our interview. You know, God had to bring this thing to him so that he could experience Christ in a a real way. I know what that's like. It's not a fun process. But you you do go deeper and Christ becomes not theoretical anymore. Now, Nehemiah has to figure out what to do with this mess. It's a mess. Can you, can you believe what's happening? This is almost impossible to believe. So what's he going to do? Well, look at verses 6 through 8. We see the depth of his anger here. It's okay to be angry. The Bible says anger is okay, especially when you're dealing with sin. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials, and I told them, you are exacting usury. And that just simply means charging exorbitant interest rates. You're exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers, only for them to be sold back to us. In other words, we, we take people out of slavery. Now you're selling them back into slavery, and we have to buy them back out of slavery. And it's almost like they've forgotten that they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And look what happened. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. They were caught. They had traded in their integrity to go below the culture line. And Nehemiah turned the light on and they were caught. And what Nehemiah was going to do as their leader is Nehemiah is going to demand something from them. He's going to demand holiness. And he had earned the right to do this because God had put him in charge and he was a godly man. And so he could ask this. Here's the first thing he did. He said, stop charging people this kind of interest. He said, I'm doing doing loans, but I'm doing it to help people. The second thing he did here is he calls a large meeting in verse 7 and he tells them to stop and he confronts them on the slavery issue. Because he knew one thing. He knew that God's reputation was at stake. This wasn't just about Israel. Yet they remember something. This is a pluralistic culture. There, there are numerous gods, little g, being worshipped all over the land. 
Nehemiah was, was, was concerned that God's name was being defiled with all of this nonsense. And in verse 9, he uses the term, in the fear of God. And that means to trust him and obey him because Israel was becoming a, a reproach, not a, not a light. And I think one, one final major point that comes through here is that one person's sin affects all of us. There is, not, there, there is no such thing as victimless sin or individual sin. And I'll explain what I mean. In Israel, if you were loan sharking, not only did you hurt the people that were actually under your oppression, but you affected the reputation of everybody in the camp. Same goes true for you. You are part of the body of Christ. We are all woven together. We all represent the same thing. If one of us begins to bring reproach on the body of Christ, we all suffer that. And it's, it's really important that you understand that. We live in such an individualistic society that we think that we're acting in isolation, but we're really not. There's a shocking passage, one verse, that I'm going to read for you in 1 Corinthians 6.16. And it speaks of the corporate nature of sin and how it affects all of the members of the body of Christ. Here's what Paul said. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. You kind of go, what? What is he saying? Unite yourself with immorality. You're uniting us all with immorality. Because we're all part of the body of Christ. And what we're trying to do at Ridgewood Church is we're trying to take Jesus to the community and impact the community to make Jesus known. And we cannot make Jesus known if we are not acting in unity and if we are not acting in a fashion that is holy and kind and gracious and loving. If one or two of us is off the rails, it'll hurt all of us. So I'm asking you this morning to examine your behavior and I'm asking you to look at Nehemiah's example. He provides here a personal exhortation. If you look at 10 and 11, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money, but let the exacting of usury stop. Nehemiah is modeling the example. The people started giving things back, the fields, the vineyards, the olive groves, houses. And because of Nehemiah's wisdom and the power of God, Israel was saved this time. And then as the section closes, he calls all of these nobles and priests together, and he makes them take an oath that they will never do this again. And then he goes to his robe, and the Bible says he, he ruffled through the, the folds of his robe, that's the pockets, and he emptied them out in a symbol that if anybody did cross them, if anybody didn't live up to their oath, he would brush them aside. This was important stuff. Once again, the people gave their assent to Nehemiah's wishes. They all cried out, Amen. And we're actually going to see soon, Israel go into this beautiful time of worship. But 
First, Nehemiah had to model this for his people. He became the governor of Judah in verses 14 and 15. And the section closes and we're feeling better about ourselves than what we did earlier. But here's, here's the thing for Ridgewood Church. We live in a culture that is going to be always antithetical to everything we believe. And to not think that is naive. But we cannot get angry in the sense of breaking relationship, of making fun of, gossiping. No. What's our calling? Our calling is to be so different. Our, our calling is to be Ernie Johnson. Oh, by the way, have I told you? God is on the throne. Have I told you? Jesus lives forever. Have I told you there's a cross where Jesus went and paid his blood as a ransom for your sin and my sin so that you can, by belief, live forever? Have I told you that Jesus is risen from the dead so we can live forever? Have I told you that there is a kingdom far beyond anything we can see where we get to be inheritors like the firstborn son? Have I told you that? You tell people that, and the election becomes a little less daunting. That's the kind of hope that people need. That's what God's calling us to do. But in order to do that, we must, we must rise above the culture line. And then we're going to watch God do amazing things. Let's pray together. Lord God, it's a, it's a hard calling. It's not easy, but we cherish it. We embrace it because it's about you. And we love you so deeply. We love you with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds. And we desire to give all of ourselves to you. But it's a process. And sometimes it takes a while. But Lord God, help us to see the reason that we are to live differently. Help us to be a magnet to the world. Help, help the western suburbs to see our fellowship as something that cares about them, that we are people of love and hospitality and dignity and convict us when we fall below the line and become like culture. And as we worship you now, we just want you to know that we believe that you are sovereign and we will never, ever turn back because we follow you as our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.